As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. And it is an absolute honor and privilege to be speaking to once again, who has been known in these internet streets as the people's historian. Thank you so much, Dr. Gerald Horn, for joining us again on The Malcolm Effect. Thank you for inviting me. An absolute pleasure, as always. I'm going to defer to Christian for the first question. So go ahead, bro. Hi. So uh, I think having you on to talk about this topic is really great because your scholarship has investigated so much of the colonial history of the Americas. So could you give an account of the United States of America's colonial past and the role the Second Amendment has played in the clashes between settlers, indigenous populations, and enslaved persons? The Second Amendment to the uh, so-called Bonted U.S. Constitution arises in the late 18th century after the victory of a coalition led by slaveholders such as George Washington against the British Empire. Recall that as early as the 1580s, that is to say 200 years before the victory of the settlers over London, as early as the 1580s, you had London sending settlers to what they call North Carolina. But of course, that particular settlement failed because London was then in bitter contestation with Catholic Spain, which had a first mover's advantage insofar as they had sponsored Christopher Columbus in 1492 and therefore had established a settlement in Florida, what they call Florida, as early as 1565. However, as we now know, as evidenced by the fact that I'm in North America speaking English, the Londoners prevailed and as early as 1607 had established a foothold in what they call Virginia after the so-called Virgin Queen, speaking of Queen Elizabeth, and from there established other settlements. Now, to get to the question at hand, the indigenous population... <laughs> of North America did not greet these invaders with sweets and candy. They greeted them with fire and the sword. There was bitter warfare between the indigenous and the invading settlers. And the invading settlers were able to prevail, not least because they had developed a technological advantage in terms of the political economy of warfare, in Britain's case, in England's case, developing an industry that in the first instance was used against the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh, but was honed in that process and eventually wielded against the indigenous. I should also mention that this political economy of warfare was also useful in keeping enslaved Africans in line 
as we know, uh, it was London that led the acceleration of the African slave trade uh, post-1688 uh, with the so-called Glorious Revolution, which amongst other things involved clipping the wings of the monarch, leaving Queen Elizabeth today as one of the richest persons on planet Earth, but not necessarily, not necessarily the power that her predecessors ruled. What the merchant class, which was in the vanguard of clipping the wings of the monarch, wanted to do was to elbow their way into the lucrative African slave trade, which theretofore had been dominated by the Royal African Company, founded circa 1672, and per its name, was under the thumb of the monarch. With 1688 and the so-called Glorious Revolution, the merchants were able to force their way into this trade, one of the most lucrative businesses known to humankind, which meant that you can invest $1 and receive $1,700 back. There are those who would kill their firstborn today for a 1,700% profit, let alone shackle and manacle some African they did not know. This led to an acceleration of the African slave trade, which in turn necessitated a further honing the political economy of warfare to keep these rebellious Africans in line, particularly in the Caribbean, Jamaica, uh, Barbados, uh, Antigua, etc. So when you have the revolt against British rule in 1776, the settlers were faced with a dilemma in the sense that they were battling London. The indigenous population was split with some siding with the settlers, some opposing the settlers, and with the enslaved Africans largely opposing the settlers' revolt because they had reason to believe that if the settlers prevailed, then their plight would worsen. And not only that, but there would be an acceleration of the African slave trade, which is precisely what happened, just to get ahead of our story, by the 1790s, that is to say, shortly after the founding of the United States, U.S. slave traders were already in charge of the slave trade to Cuba, 90 miles from Florida. And by the 1840s, U.S. enslavers were in charge of the slave trade to the largest market of all, speaking of Brazil. In any case, with the founding of the United States in the late 18th century, the indigenous population and the Africans were not necessarily reconciled to this development. And the rulers of this new republic, so-called, felt that the better part of wisdom would be to have a well-armed settler population, which leads us to the Second Amendment. That is to say that the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution ostensibly speaks of a well-armed militia, but as you know, it has been interpreted in a different vein mandating a well-armed settler population. And it's important to note that the Second Amendment only applied to settlers. It was considered to be a sacred violation of custom, if not law, to put arms in the hands of Native Americans, the indigenous. Uh, you need only do a brief survey of so-called cowboy movies where 
one of the most uh, scandalous characters, inevitably, was some settler who was selling arms to Native Americans. And certainly, uh, the same held true for Africans. And once again, the Second Amendment, the arming of settlers, was crucial and critical to the defeat of many Native American groupings. And it was also crucial and critical to the subjugation of an enslaved population. Thank you so much for that, for that elaborate and well-explained kind of historical context to where we are today regarding the Second Amendment. I think the question I have here then is when we often have these tragedies that occur in the United States, um, the immediate clamor, call and rally cry is to tighten gun laws and Democratic Party. And then, you know, Joe Biden will come up and say, you know, when are we going to stand up to the gun lobby as if he isn't the president himself? (laughs) That's another topic for another day. But my question then is, thinking about the history of black radicalism, specifically in the United States, and thinking about, let's say, the Black Panther and Malcolm and people speaking about the the need to arm our communities for self-defense, where do you think or what should be the response of those who fancy themselves as black radicals today when it comes to the cry or the, or the talk about gun laws today in the States? Well, first of all, uh, a bit of historical background. You're probably familiar with the anti-lynching crusader Ida B. Wells Barnett, or Ida yeah. B. Wells as she was once called. Lynching, of course, being the process whereby particularly in the late 19th century, in the the first few decades of the 20th century, you had mobs of settlers, sometimes 10,000 or more, engaging in these rituals whereby they would snatch a black person, oftentimes a black man, accused of some misdeed, and rather than have that black person go through a process of law, a trial by the jury of his peers, there was this ritual whereby they would burn that person at the stake, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, what, what's striking about this, and I pointed this out in an article in the uh, left-leaning weekly The Nation a few months ago, mm-hmm. whereas in the 1500s, as settler colonialism was being launched against the backdrop of religious sectarianism, particularly, as noted, uh, conflicts between Catholic Spain and Protestant England. And so... Even in England, you would have Catholics burn Protestants at the stake. By the late 19th century, you had Catholics and Protestants linking hands along with the other so-called religious Mm -hmm. foes, speaking of those who happen to be Jewish, linking hands and burning black people at the stake. And what was interesting is that it was also a kind of entertainment That is to say that the body oftentimes would be dismembered and the digits passed out to be pickled by spectators. Postcards would be made. In fact, you can still find these postcards uh, showing some black person being burned at the stake. And it was also pre-radio and pre-television a form of entertainment. It was was an adjunct to the tourist industry, in fact. And and, and indeed, uh, you had the uh, train railroad companies uh, cooperate in transporting thousands of spectators to these backwater towns where these lynchings oftentimes took place. 
And then when you add the advent of the automobile about 120 years ago, they were used not only in terms of transporting people to the site of the lynching, but also uh, taking the victim's corpse or even the live victim and dragging him behind the car until his body broke up into different pieces. In fact, in 1998 in Jasper, Texas, not far from where I'm speaking to you now, you can go online and look up James Byrd, B-Y-R-D, a black man who was subjected to that kind of dragging, that kind of lynching. So given that circumstance, unsurprisingly, anti-lynch crusaders like Ida B. Wells Barnett suggested that a Winchester rifle should hold a prominent place in the household of any black family. What I'm suggesting is that even before the advent of the Black Panther Party in the 1960s, the cries of Malcolm X in the 1960s, there had been attempts, well-established attempts to develop a means to fight back. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, my new book on Texas, uh, Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of U.S. fascism, if I'm not mistaken, I have episodes in there in Texas where uh, Black people are forming armed brigades to fight back against the lynchers. This is this would be about 100 years ago or so. But any case, as you suggest, uh, with the dawning of the Black Panther Party, in particular, you had an acceleration of this trend. Initially, yes. the idea was for these Black people to monitor the police, because what happens is that you have this transition from private mobs killing Black people to with the complicity of the state, with the state taking that duty altogether, which is not to dismiss the idea of private mobs. I mean, you saw what happened in Buffalo just about 10 days Mm -hmm. ago, where a private individual massacred 10 Black people. So the Black Panther Party and other such groups like the Community Alert Patrol in Los Angeles, uh, they were monitoring the police. They then began to move in a more militant, aggressive form You may recall what happened in December 1969 in Los Angeles in particular, when there was a shootout between the Black Panthers and the Los Angeles Police Department. The Black Panthers were led by Geronimo Pratt, who had been decorated by the U.S. military while fighting the genocidal war in Indochina, Vietnam, but comes Mm -hmm. back, uses his skills to train Black Panthers. Eventually, he is arrested on trumped-up charges before the celebrated, now deceased lawyer, Johnny Cochran of Los Angeles, takes his case, helps to free him. He winds up moving to Tanzania, Southeast Africa, where he passes away about a decade ago. In any case, this idea that self-defense is a mandate, it's simple intelligence, Uh, took deep roots in the uh, Black American community. But of course, the the problem, once again, was the settlers and their arms, such as the police department, had a well-developed political economy of warfare. 
And indeed, as time passed, we find that the settler and their regime in Washington were training others, such as the Israelis, for example, mm -hmm. and also learning from the Israelis in, in terms of corralling civilian populations, the Palestinians in one instance, Africans in North America in another instance. And therefore, as we used to say, the correlation of forces has not been very positive with regard mm -hmm. to the ability to fight back effectively. Although I will say that to its credit, the Black Panther Party uh, did try to establish international alliances. Recall that at one time it had an international outpost in Algiers and Northern Africa, and it oftentimes sent delegations overseas. But because of internecine conflict within the ranks, because of external repression, you may have seen the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, which yeah. <laughs> tells about the killing of Black Panthers in Chicago in their beds in December 1969. And so the Black Panthers, an organized force, eventually were driven out of business. But uh, I dare say that the idea that they helped to promote about self-defense has yet to be extirpated. Mm -hmm. mm. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I guess just to kind of re-ask again, what do you think the response of black radicals today, or those who fancy themselves as black radicals today, when we're speaking about gun laws and gun re and reforming gun laws in America? I think it's mixed opinions. Uh, okay. Because there's this widespread perception that the proliferation of weapons in the United States is benefiting the most rapacious of settlers, after all, there are more weapons in the United States than there are people, 330 million people, maybe 400 million or more weapons. Then there is an industry that ships weapons, small weapons all over the, the world, particularly in Mexico, where they have become tools of the so-called drug cartels. And I think that many, I think there's a split in black radical circles. Some would say, the correlation of forces notwithstanding, we need to be armed and we need to be armed in an organized fashion. Others would say that there should be a push for some sort of gun safety or gun control regulations that at least would prevent an 18-year-old from buying a weapon legally and going into a Buffalo supermarket and killing 10 black people or an 18-year-old from going into a public school in Ovalde, Texas and massacring two teachers and 19 10-year-olds. So there, there's a split. Uh, there, there, there's mm -hmm. no question about it. There's no doubt about it. And I'm not sure how that split will be resolved. Okay, I wanted to kind of explore that question a bit further, especially the, the kind of former position. Because as you've laid out, earlier on in this segment and even in the answer that you gave that, you know, the Second Amendment and gun control is clearly not a universal right, but it's really a classed and racialized arbitration of the state who holds a monopoly on violence. And uh, in that case, is, is there a fear, you know, that in our context, a greater increase in gun control can mean further criminalization of black and brown people who are often incarceration for a violation of 
gun laws. I mean, it, it seems clear that if as much as gun legislation is for arming particular members of the settler population, it's it also exists to punish those who are not, you know, a part of said settler population. Well, that's true. And my own opinion is that this is as much a tactical question as it is a strategic question. What I mean is that I personally am not opposed to organize black formations. The question is only the timing of such. And as noted, the correlation of forces, as your comment suggested, is not very promising right now. That is to say that the right wing is on the march. It's no accident that um, we are, many of us are expecting a kind of neo-fascism to arise in the United States of America. And the, the, the problem, of course, is that despite this widespread recognition, I don't see the kind of internationalizing of the U.S. question that we were able to do during the days of slavery and the days of Jim Crow or U.S. apartheid. And so I think that to the extent we're able to internationalize the question, U.S. neo-fascism, to that extent, we can then begin to discuss intelligently some notion of black formations. For example, Two data points. Uh, 1967, the early Black Panther Party uh, marches into the Sacramento legislature, the capital of the state of California, armed, apparently without uh, ammunition. And that causes an uproar, needless to say. And even the right wing pushes for gun control. Uh, You oftentimes hear the notion that if you really want gun control in the United States, you need to talk about arming black people. And that feeds into my previous point, which is that I see it really as as, as a kind of question of timing and tactics uh, more than anything else. The second point is that in Louisville, Kentucky, you have or you have had a group, contemporary group, NFAC, armed, young black men. What do those initials stand for? A no effing around coalition. Now, what's happened to them, of course, is that they armed and the hammer of the state immediately came down on their heads. And they even found it difficult to rally support in left-wing circles. So that suggests that, once again, we're facing a dilemma. Because on the one hand, what I'm suggesting is that it's a question of timing, it's a question of tactics. But on the other hand, I'm suggesting that the United States, United States might be on the verge of neo-fascism, which means we need to start changing strategy and tactics immediately, if not sooner. And if you aspire a kind of contradiction in what I've just outlined, you are perceptive. But... I'm not sure how to reconcile that contradiction. On the one hand, if neo-fascism is around the corner, we need to radically change our approach. But on the other hand, when you see folks try to do that, the hammer of the state comes down on their head. So there you have it. I mean, well, 
I did want to say, you know, one of the things I did want to mention earlier, but you you went ahead and touched on it, was the, the Mulford Act of uh, 1967, which was the legislation that, that uh, restricted gun control, and even the, the NRA was in support of gun control. But, you know, you also touched on the internationalization of the issue, and maybe there's even, uh, uh, you know, strategic possibilities in internationalizing the scope of the discussion. And again, you know, there are racial and class dimensions to gun control. Um, so, you know, how does the issue of American sanction gun violence expand on the international front? You know, there's a clear contradiction of who is allowed to wield and who is not. And uh, even those in the Democratic Party who so- show sympathy for victims of mass shootings um, are often quiet about the lives of those abroad. So why is there a callousness over the lives of the precious children, even in the global South? Well, I think that if you understand U.S. imperialism, the answer becomes clear. That is to say that a good deal of the wealth of the ruling elite in the United States is based upon shameless plunder and exploitation of labor and resources abroad, not just labor and resources in North America. In fact, I have suggested, and I will mention it again here, that as a result of U.S. imperialism's depredations in Libya, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in nations too numerous to mention, that that has led to a kind of coarsening of the national psyche, the cheapening of life. And besides, since many of the nationals of those aforementioned nations are not necessarily defined as, quote, white, unquote, that means that killing them abroad then returns to these shores with a vengeance, uh, helping to rationalize, if not justify, inflicting similar depredations upon those not defined as white in North America. So clearly, there is a linkage between the foreign policy of U.S. imperialism and the domestic policy of U.S. capitalism. The problem, amongst others, is that linkage is oftentimes not articulated. I would argue that it stems from a well-calculated objective of the U.S. ruling class to smash and suppress organizations, individuals who try to make that linkage. I've made reference to the Black Panther Party, for example, which in its past iteration is no longer with us. I could have mentioned the formations that arose before the Black Panther Party, as symbolized by the late, great Paul Robeson, who was a pioneer in internationalizing the Black question, 1950, 1951, filing a petition at the United Nations at their headquarters in both Europe and New York City, United Nations, New York, filing a petition charging the United States with genocide against Black people, formulating a paperback book that sells in the thousands of copies all over the world. And in fact, during the U.S. war 
on the Korean Peninsula in 1950 to 1953, you find that on the northern half of the Korean Peninsula, those fighting U.S. imperialism oftentimes used the Wechar's genocide booklet for political education, not only for themselves, but for prisoners of war, U.S. prisoners of war and other prisoners of war, because, of course, for reasons that need not detain us here, the troops fighting on behalf of U.S. imperialism in North Korea were fighting under a United Nations flag. And so there were, in fact, there were Ethiopians involved in um, this particular conflict. So Robeson, of course, winds up being isolated, uh, marginalized, barely escapes prison. He had been an international celebrity, uh, movie stars, concert singer, professional athlete. His income plunges from the six figures to the low four figures. And so after a while, when Black working class and poor people see what happens to Robeson, see what happens to the Black Panther Party, perhaps many of them decide that the better part of wisdom is not to be too militant, not to internationalize the question. As used to be said in the bad old days, you only need to beat one slave to keep the entire plantation in line. The problem there, and once again, it's a contradiction, that to the extent that we are not militant, to the extent that we don't internationalize the question, to that extent, we're basically welcoming the onset and the onslaught of a unique form of U.S. fascism. But that's the contradiction, that's the dilemma that we face. Thank you so much. And in kind of on the theme of internationalization and building alliances, I guess I know you've highlighted that there is a contradiction, but knowing what you know of the state of play today, uh, specifically geopolitically, where would you say the eyes of young black activists or organizers in the West should be set upon? Where do you think the inroads, where do you think the possibilities of inroads can be made? Well, there are so many possibilities. My mind becomes dizzy and just trying to see. (laughs) I mean, in no particular order of importance, we expect Haiti to become a member of the African Union rather short, headquartered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And that opens the possibility of the Haitians in the AU to then rally the AU on behalf of the diaspora, the diaspora in North America, Caribbean, and elsewhere. And in fact, in that regard, you may be familiar with the fact that a few months ago, there was a very important virtual summit between leaders of the Caribbean community, CARICOM, Secretariat in Georgetown, Guyana, on the northern coast of South America, and the African Union with leaders such as President Ramaphosa of South Africa, President Kenyatta of Kenya, participating in this virtual summit, plotting plans of mutual concern and mutual interest. Uh, Even without that virtual summit, uh, you regularly have human rights investigations of the United States with regard to killings of black people. The problem is it's not necessarily coordinated. What we really need is some sort of umbrella organization that has tentacles reaching into workplaces, into campuses, into neighborhoods. But we don't have that right now. At least we we, we have national organizations, but oftentimes they're like the NAACP 
the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, founded as 1909, uh, but was forced to go through a red scare that caused them to distance themselves from Robeson in the 1960s. They were only intermittently in solidarity with the Black Panther Party. And so they're, a, pardon the expression, but they're a little gun shy. So we need some sort of revived organization that could coordinate these kinds of international campaigns. Uh, hopefully that's over the horizon, around the corner. And then on the individual level, we need more of our youth uh, who are not only becoming multilingual, in various languages, I would say on the individual level, that needs to be pursued aggressively. Uh, but you also need more of our youth to follow what's going on globally and have the kind of outlook and the kind of strategic framework that allows them to synthesize a flurry of international events. I mean, for example, uh, right now, we may be on the verge of a turning point in the global correlation of forces with the crisis in Ukraine, which is causing the boycott of Russia, Russian energy, which means Chancellor Schultz of Germany just a few days ago was in Niger soliciting Ukrainian, uranium, excuse me, uranium. And in South Africa, where he received a lecture from President Ramaphosa, because he's Berlin is not happy with uh, South Africa's not joining the sanctions parade against Russia. But then again, South Africa has uh, titanium necessary for sophisticated jets. It has palladium necessary for catalytic converters to go into automobiles necessary for the green economy. Of course, Russia has those resources as well, but. As noted, the idea is to boycott Russia. The Europeans are upset with Algeria because Algeria has natural gas and has been playing Spain off against Italy with regard to that resource. A turnabout from a time when European nations played off one African nation against another. With regard to petroleum, they're trying to turn away from Russian petroleum, which puts a premium on Nigerian petroleum and Angolan petroleum. So what I'm suggesting is that, A, this, there's this shift in the political economy of planet Earth, which is going to be placing more emphasis on African resources. And uh, I must compliment the African nations for not necessarily joining the sanctions crusade against Russia, because the other shoe has dropped with Mr. Biden's trip to Northeast Asia, because if you look at the article I wrote on the Black Agenda Report, shortly after the Ukraine crisis erupted, what you'll find is that I outlined there that the confrontation with Russia is only stage one. Stage two is the confrontation with the People's Republic of China, which Mr. Biden was signaling just a few days ago in his trip to Seoul and Tokyo. Interestingly enough, as he was speaking, a joint military exercise was unfolding featuring Russian and Chinese bombers flying in his vicinity. Beijing and Moscow claim this is coincidence. Others are not so sure. So we are at the cusp of a very sensitive moment 
in terms of this small planet and the, the, the sad aspect and the tragic aspect of North America, the United States, is that you, you'll find many people consider themselves militant. They really don't keep up with this sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's a contradiction. Once again, on the one hand, many of them have this ideology that tells them that they're surrounded by white supremacists. Okay, fine. Let, let's, for the sake of discussion, stipulate that. Well, if that's the case, shouldn't you try to lengthen the battlefield? Shouldn't you try to get some global alliances in play? But somehow that, that, that never dawns. And so you'll find some of our comrades, quote unquote, if, if the press would call them for a comment about what I've just outlined, they'd be hiding under their desk because they'd be too nervous to speak out. That's part of the contradiction. How can you be nervous to speak out when we're talking about being on the verge of fascism? So the, these are the dilemmas, the ugly dilemmas that we're confronting right now. It's interesting you, you brought up the, the African Union and abstaining from uh, Russia. and uh, I mean, the majority of um, African nation had abstained from various UN resolutions. But I saw that um, the Senegalese pre- president is supposed to represent the AU and take a visit to Moscow. In the, in the region. I know this kind of deviates from our, our discussion, but I kind of wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah. And, and I wanted to follow up to, for our viewers, or for our, not our viewers, our listeners, uh, where do you get your uh, news from? Like, what is the best way for our viewership to be, or our listenership to, to stay up to date with some of these events? Well, Mackie Saul, what happened was that Chancellor Schultz, before he jetted off to Niger and South Africa, dropped into Dakar. And you know, I thought what Mackey saw, what I heard and said was legitimate. He, he wants to negotiate a peace settlement. Uh, I think that that's worthy. He, he didn't say that I'm joining the, the sanctions crusade. He said he wants to bring, actually, that's, that's what Cyril said too in, in South Africa, which is that engagement, negotiations, dialogue. That was his lecture to Chancellor Schultz. And I, I happen to agree with that because... I agree with it because right now in the United States, which has been more hawkish, actually Britain in some ways has been more hawkish than the United States, but that's another story for another day. But just today it was announced that the United States is going to call a pause on sending certain kinds of advanced weaponry to Ukraine, which is a good sign because about what two weeks ago, the Pentagon chief, Lord Austin, was calling his counterpart in Moscow calling for a ceasefire. That was two weeks ago. And, and so, so what, what, what you see is that if you're calling for a ceasefire, that must mean that things are not going very well. So in sum and in short, uh, I was not uh, upset with Mackie Saul's call unless I missed uh, some phrases that the press that I scanned did not cover. Now, speaking of the latter, I mean, I, I, I consume all sorts of press. I mean, in terms of print and hard copy, you know, Financial Times, China Daily, Financial Times of London, China Daily, New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, The New Yorker, New Republic. These are just hard copies. Washington Examiner, right-wing publication. The Week, which is sort of a, a centrist U.S. publication. All, all kinds of The Nation, which I write for, left-leaning publication out of New York. And then online, RT RT.com, which is Moscow, Al Jazeera. I had tuned out to Al Jazeera for a while out of gutter because at the onset of the Ukraine crisis, for whatever reason, it it seemed to be indistinguishable from, say, France 24, 
which I also monitor, and BBC, which I also monitor. But I've been tuning in for the last few days, and they seem to have gotten their act together. And, and the good thing about uh, uh, Al Jazeera is that in, in terms of visually, they do a better job of covering Africa than just about... Than, what France 24 does a fair job of covering Africa, but of course it has the... Um, the French spin. French is the France, of course, is the main empire, neo empire uh, in Africa. So France twenty four, BBC. Also, I also monitor Voice of America because what you find about Voice of America is that it's really to the left of the U.S. corporate media, the New York Times and Washington Post, because I, you know they're, they're trying to attract an African audience, and African audiences. I'm talking, I'm talking about Voice of America. I'm talking about Africa fifty four, which is visual. And then just audio would be African News Tonight, for example, or Nightline Africa. So they're trying to appeal to an African audience, and the African audience are not going to accept the right-wing nonsense that U.S. audience accepts. So they try to appeal to that sentiment. And of course, you always have to keep in mind that there's a spin involved. And then uh, occasionally, I uh, monitor uh, YouTube for various pieces from you know, Australia, from China, CCTV, Telesur, Venezuela. I mean, you know, come on. There's no excuse for being uninformed. I mean, most of these people, <laughs> they're, they're carrying around a small computer everywhere they go. And I guess just using it for Snap and TikTok when they... <laughs> so it's, it's really no excuse. Absolutely. Yeah, so... That was a bit of a deviation from the, the topic of the Second Amendment, but it was it was a good one. But I didn't want to get back because there was something, you know, you had you had answered the, one of the questions I had planned to ask about the need for institution building to to address the milieu of social and economic issues, you know, and gun violence being one of them. However, you know, as much as institution building is necessary for resistance, you know, I wanted to ask you some questions to analyze the, the institutions of opposition, and one of those institutions being the NRA. You know, according to opensecrets.org, the National Rifle Association, or the NRA, has spent over $4.9 million lobbying in the year 2021. Um, we hear a lot about the NRA and their role lobbying Republican politicians every time these mass shootings occur, which is all too often now. And even in 2017, they released an advertisement suggesting the viewers should join them in opposing those who ask for more gun control. And some considered the tone of the video to be inciting violence. So could you talk about the history and relevance of the NRA with regards to gun control in this country? Well, it's interesting. The NRA, it sort of starts off. Uh, its original iteration is not as militant and as fascistic as it is today. It starts off with regard to sharpshooting. Because as you know, given the proliferation of weapons, skeet shooting. I used to skeet shoot, for example. That's when you have these clay pigeons and, I mean, not real pigeons, obviously. And you have a device that shoots them in the air. And then as they're moving with some velocity, you're trying to shoot it. And it improves your hand-eye coordination and improves your sharpshooting. And of course, when I was doing this, I was much younger. And that, that was the era of the Black Panthers when everybody well, not everybody. Many people thought that uh, you should be trained in weapons. And I, I, I uh, was part of that movement. However, the National Rifle Association 
devolves uh, rapidly over the decades where now, and I should mention it just had its annual convention in Houston, Texas, about walking distance from where I'm speaking to you. And uh, it's a neo-fascistic organization. It's a major stumbling block to having any sort of reasonable uh, gun safety to try to keep attack weapons, assault weapons out of the hands of teenagers. The latest news today, if you look at the New York Post, the right-wing newspaper, it's about a 10-year-old in Florida who threatens to shoot up his class. I mean, this, this is the kind of insanity we have in this country. A 10-year-old threatening to shoot up his class. So the NRA, uh, it one of the, the, the lessons I would try to impart to your audience is that it is well for us to excoriate and denounce the leaders, the Trumps, Governor Abbott's of Texas, Governor DeSantis of Florida, 1%, the corporate titans that back them. But it's important to, to note that uh, there's a mass base for fascism in the United States. As a matter of fact, in, in recent appearances, I've been suggesting that this slogan of the 1% versus the 99%, that is to say, the 1% being those at the top of the socioeconomic pyramid and 99% being the rest of us, that needs to be revised because it's clear that from the onset of settler colonialism that a good deal of the 99% has supported the 1%. That's how this country was built. And so we should, really should talk about the one-third versus the two-thirds. I think that, that, that gives a more accurate assessment numerically. And certainly uh, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, is part of the one-third. And I'll stop there because we only have a few minutes left, and I don't I want you to get in your, your last thought before we conclude. Yeah, we got one more question. And, uh, you know, uh, I was, you know, this is not your first time talking about gun control. I was looking at some of the, your past interviews and there was a previous interview you had with Real News Network and you had mentioned that, you know, the violence of these mass shootings can be attributed to some deeper sociological uh, issues of patriarchy and racism. And, you know, in this segment, it was pointed out that the vast majority of those who commit mass shootings are, are male. You know, potentially this is stemming out of, uh, uh, antagonist, uh, antagonistic feelings towards, you know, the uh, the um, progress uh, women have made and, and, and feminism. And uh, one only has to let the evidence stare them in the face with regards to the shooting in, in New York for evidence of racism being a, a large part of this. So if this is a deeper sociological issue, you know, what are then the actionable steps to address this problem? Huh. Well... <laughs> That's a $64 question. I mean, that, that, that's something I've been trying to allude to. Obviously, we need more organization. We need more left-wing organization, particularly in the Black community. We need more internationalism, particularly in the Black community. And I say particularly in the Black community because we're going to be early victims, just like we've been perpetual victims since the onset of settler colonialism uh, centuries ago. And with regard to patriarchy, uh, there's a special role for Black women to face because, as you know, there's a, a special oppression of Black women that's received considerable and justifiable attention of late. And then you have this subset of the patriarchal caucus that is called INCEL, I-N-C-E-L. And these are usually young. <laughs> well, you know about them, huh? 
Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Like, oh, no, I, I've never heard I'm of them called surprised. the. I've never heard of them called the Patriarchal Caucus, though. That's that's a new one. <laughs> that's, that's a new I, one. Amazing. I like that. <laughs> yeah, and so you know they they're unhappy and about suppose their supposed lack of access to women, and therefore they want to kill them. So one way to look at the United States is that it's a country in rapid decomposition. One way to look at the United States is that it cut a deal with China 50 odd years ago against the interests of the Soviet Union, but that it backfired insofar as China in return received massive foreign direct investment from the United States as entire facilities floated across the Pacific. And in return, China oftentimes collaborated with U.S. imperialism, such as waging war against Vietnam after the United States was ousted in 1975. But now the United States can't necessarily compete with China which has led to this Biden trip to Northeast Asia that I mentioned a moment or two ago, which has led to an attempt to unscramble the egg by somehow destabilizing the People's Republic of China. And it also ties into racial anxiety because the rise of China, obviously, it suggests that this hegemony of the North Atlantic countries to return to where we began, which was inaugurated uh, in the 1500s, uh, may be shuddering to a close. And that's obviously quite upsetting to many and may be an underlying reason for a lot of this anxiety and hysteria uh, in this country that's causing news reports to emerge about 10-year-olds wanting to commit mass murder. Thank you so much once again for an extremely generative and insightful conversation. Um, Please, you can reach out to Dr. Gerald Horn. Um, he's got several books coming out, as always, and all his books so far, and to get through them, but they are amazing. Um, thank you. You're listening to The Malcolm Effect with myself and Christian. Until next time, please like, comment, subscribe, and drop a rating. Take care.